Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this, and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. So, Chad Hoover is the guest on this episode, and if you don't know who he is, you could probably turn on... uh, sportsman's channel or world fishing network and if you've seen a kayak show chances are you've seen him um he is a guy who had a passion for kayak fishing and wanted a voice for the kayak fishermen in the bass fishing industry because it was pretty much only saltwater stuff and he devised a, a tournament system and uh it's rapidly advanced and over the years it's gotten better and better and better and it's gotten bigger and bigger and it's really brought kayak bass fishing and kayak fishing on lakes and rivers in general mainstream. And he's one of the ones that are almost solely responsible for that. And you almost have to just stop and, and thank him because it's a great way of fishing. It's affordable. It's fun. And uh, it, it definitely gets you into a lot of places that you normally wouldn't go. And it's pretty neat to see how the kayak fishing industry Uh, as far as the technology of the kayaks and everything is developed due to the growing popularity and the numbers of anglers. And the more anglers, obviously, there is, the more input there is out there. And it's uh, pretty great to see it developing and kind of rolling into hunting aspect, too. And uh, it's pretty cool to just just really stop and think, wow, you know, the past three, four years, it's really, really taken off. And I'm kind of excited to see where it goes. And uh, I, I just love things that have a portability aspect that you normally wouldn't get with a with a big boat that you got to lug around behind you or something versus something you can throw on top of your vehicle or inside of it and just zip on off and get out on the water drag it somewhere you know 
And uh, that's kind of what we talk about in this episode, as well as how, how it all got started for him and, and uh, you know, where it's going to go. So without me talking anymore, here's the episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so I'm sitting here, and I'm talking to Chad Hoover of Kayak Bass Fishing dot com and also the tournaments and the tv show so uh chad why don't you introduce yourself well i think you did it i'm chad <laughs> Hoover. i'm uh i'm the host of uh kayak bass and tv on world fishing network um not right kayak fishing on sportsman channel and uh also kayak bass fishing on fox so uh yeah we might be changing the name of not right kayak fishing to uh chad hoover outdoors or chad hoover fishing this year but for now it's uh not right outdoors because everybody says I'm uh, I'm not right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all right. Being not right is what we like on this show because it helps us fit in. But yeah, uh, yeah. so you want to tell me a little bit about? I mean, I know probably everybody's kind of heard a little bit of the story, but how did the whole kayak bass fishing thing come into fruition? Uh, you know, I started kayak fishing in uh, 1996. Um, I was in Corpus Christi. Uh, most of the kayak fishing that I did then was um, was saltwater fishing, but I started sneaking up to uh, Choke Canyon and and uh, a couple of the lakes around Austin, and then I would go down to the the Texas Mexico border and fish Falcon Lake and was catching some freaking monster bass from the kayak, and so that kind of lit the fire. Uh, I had to transfer from there uh, to Virginia, and when I was in Virginia, I started um, bass fishing again. Uh, even though there's great saltwater fishing there. And uh, while I was in Virginia, um, started the online series in 2009. And I was right about the time that the book was coming out that I wrote, Kayak Bass Fishing. And we uh, we legitimately just wanted something for bass fishing. Like everybody was saltwater fishing from kayaks back then. And uh, it was probably 2,000 to 1, you know, uh, saltwater kayak fishermen over freshwater kayak fishermen. Uh, really there's almost no freshwater kayak fishing. All the, the pages back then were forums. They weren't, you know, social media wasn't what it is today. And so most of the pages were saltwater fishing. And then you would have like a freshwater board at the very bottom and it would get like, you know, no traffic. And so I got frustrated one day and I was sitting around, I was like, man, somebody should start a kayak bass fishing page. And uh, one of my buddies was like, dude, why don't you do it? I was like, I don't know anything about websites or forums or any of that. So, And that's what he did. So he helped me set it up. And um, then we started the online tournaments. And people really, really, really responded to that. And then that started to really promote freshwater kayak fishing. Um, it gave people something to rally behind. There were some guys that were also doing it in Texas. And so it just kind of naturally started to snowball. And then of course, with me being on TV, I was able to promote it. Um, and that kind of helped light the fire for kayaks to take a lot bigger foothold in freshwater. And, uh, and, you know, as they say, kind of the rest is history. We started in 2012 with our first live tournament, we came back in 2013 and 2014 to the same location in Sandy Cooper. And, uh, then we, um, we decided to move it to Kentucky Lake because I had moved to Tennessee. We did the first open on Kentucky Lake um, in 2015. And then in 2016, we decided we wanted to do something bigger with the national championship. So we partnered with a lot of clubs around the country to create that 
that buy-in and to have that qualification process. Uh, did that first national championship in conjunction with an open. We did an open first and then a national championship. Uh, Matt Ball won that and won like $32,000, which at that time was the biggest payout in kite fishing history. Um, in fact, that national championship is still the highest payout of any tournament that isn't a KBF tournament. And then in 2017, uh, that price went up to $40,500 and that was Kurt Smith's. And then in 2017, you know, the, the, or 2018, the big one that everybody's familiar with is the hundred thousand dollars that Dwayne Taft won. And then in 2019, um, Mike Elsey won the national championship, uh, in Shreveport and Bossier city. And that one we paid out, um, 50,000 was the guaranteed first place. And then he walked away with another 20 something thousand in bonus bucks for a grand total of like 73, five. So that's been kind of the progression of it underneath building out the national championship. Folks started wanting to have smaller events. So we started the trail, uh, went way too big, way too soon early on with 56 events, the first season. And it, we were dogpiling up a waterfall to just try to even do the minimums. Got it a little smaller the following year, a little smaller last year and even smaller this year. And then we're going to just keep trying to dial it in to get that sweet spot of how many events is the right number of events, events that we can afford to run and activate to a premium level that people expect. And, um, you know, those are doing really well. Um, we, uh, we went to a guarantee payout model last year. It kind of frustrated people. If it was an event with a lot of people, then the payout was smaller than it would have been if it was a hundred percent payout. But in the events with less people, the payout was way higher. So it was like the big tournaments funded the smaller ones. And it really didn't get a lot of credit when we paid out more, but it got a lot of, you know, unhappy people when we paid out less. So we flipped the script and went back to 100% payout model this year. Uh, we've got the national championship April 2nd, 3rd, and uh, 4th down on Gunnersville. That thing is going to be a slugfest. There's already 597 anglers, I think, signed up, and they still have um, two months to go. Granted, the, the entry fee goes up in January, so a lot less people will enter. But we still have um, we still have two months to go. There's going to be some folks that enter. Um, it's a seventy-five thousand dollar guarantee payout this year, um, which in, is bigger than a lot of pro tournaments, you know. Um, so it's pretty pretty special to be able to be in a position to offer that uh, to the community. And what we really like about the kayak bass fishing national championship is it's not super elite and super hard to qualify for, but it ain't easy. Because a lot of people that tried didn't qualify, but it's really one of those events that it's an everyman kind of event. But if you win it, you know, you can pretty much be a household name in kayak fishing, you know, overnight, realistically, by winning that event. And so that that was really the idea behind that event and why we created it and why we made it what we want, what it is, is to have that, you know, that everyman event, that event. That, sorry. That's right. <laughs> that every That everyman event that everybody you know, or, or every person event that everybody can, um, can have a shot at winning. And, um, you know, pretty much everybody that's ever won that event has ended up with sponsorships and, and won a lot more from it than the money that they took home that day. Uh, and we do the best we can to promote the national champions, especially in the year of their reign. Um, and then every chance that we get kind of, you know, provided they're showing up to KBF events, we're putting them on, on camera as much as we can. And we're putting them out in front of the, the community as much as we can and we're you know we put them on the website and we we use them for banners and backdrops at trade shows and we do everything we can to um 
to really brand that person's image uh, to help them, you know, achieve more than just winning the money that they want at that event because that money is going to spend. But when it's left, you've got legacy and you've got, you know, relationships. So that's kind of the idea, man. We, uh, we really love the challenge series that we do online because it engages everybody. You can fish your own waters, your own time. Uh, we took them from 30 days down to 21 days this year so that we've got time to reset between them. Uh, we were dogpiling up a waterfall again, you know, last year trying to keep up with all the payouts and the stuff. And when everything hits at the end of the month and you've got several hundred payouts to process, a lot of people don't think about the fact that if it takes you just five minutes, which it doesn't, it takes about 10 to maybe 12 minutes to process a payout, do that times 600 and that's a week and a half, you know? Um, so, and that's if you're only doing that and we don't have a person whose job it is to only do that. So we separated it this year. That way those end on the 21st, very few tournaments are going to land on that same time. We're going to have a few, but it allows us to spread it out. It allows us a chance to post the results for that one and have a good, you know, five or six days to promote the next series kicking off before that one's over. And so those, you know, we're constantly listening, constantly, um, figuring out what it is the anglers want to see, uh, and, and making small changes, not crazy sweeping changes as much as we can, uh, to dial it in. So we're providing the best possible opportunity for the anglers. And we're also realizing that even with the number of events we're doing this year, it's still probably too many. We'll probably do less next year and then really activate our partner groups to be the part that's the feeders to the bigger stuff. And we focus on doing the bigger stuff and let the partners run their events on their lakes and then use KBS um, bigger picture buy-in to help drive more participation, even at those events, by doing things like we're doing with the Partner Championship Series. Uh, this year is going to be the first for that. We put up $5,000 guaranteed added money before the tournament's even started. And then we're going to put $25 from every one of our ambassador memberships into that pool to build that thing up. And it'll be a $100 entry fee but you can only qualify for it through the partner events. You can't even qualify for it through the actual KBF events. So therefore we're helping drive participation in the partner events and giving them a championship that we fund, that we activate, that we stand behind. And it's something that they can use as a, as a carrot on the stick for participation in their events and something that's not as, um, as high pressure as the national championship, you know, but it's a fun get together end of the year blowout for all the clubs and partners. And uh, we're doing a youth challenge series this year, May, June, July, and August. And we're going to also do the youth championship in conjunction with it. So we're looking for that event to be a pretty fun event, you know, a couple hundred to maybe four or 500 people uh, from around the country. Again, you win that event, you can make your season, you can make your year and you could even make a fishing career off of it, but uh, not trying to make it the same as the national championship, just different, you know? Right. So if somebody wants to get involved in the kayak bass fishing, you need to find a small, uh, what, what do you, a non, it's a sanctioned event, but it's a non KBF event and that qualifies yeah, it's a partner event. Yep. Those partner events qualify you for that. And our partners are all listed on our page under kayakbassfishing.com forward slash partners. And, um, or you can just look on the tabs at the top and find the partner groups and we're slowly but surely migrating their, um, their pages and their schedules onto a, an event page on our page, but they're all pretty easy to find. If you search the name of your state kayak fishing on Facebook or any social media, you can usually find the best club around or the closest club to you. And then you just look for the KBF, you know, affiliate logo on their banners. Uh, and that lets you know that they're a partner and that their events are going to qualify. you. And most of them have it listed on their, 
on their event sheets and on their documentation, you know? Right. So one thing I'm kind of curious about is since uh, kayak bass fishing has kind of really, I mean, I'd say within the last four years really exploded, you never really heard of it that much before and uh, you were doing it all the way back then. What kind of kayak did you use back then versus what we all know you use now? I mean, how has that evolved? <laughs> <laughs> so I started out in an ocean kayak frenzy, which was like nine foot, six inches long. And it was like sitting on a grease log. I think, <laughs> I think the first two times I missed the hook set on a redfish, I went swimming. Um, I then I moved from there to an ocean kayak scrambler. It was either a scrambler or a scrambler XT. And again, that was just a wreck boat. It was kind of like a banana. It had a lot of rocker in it. It wasn't real stable. I think I might have, you know, flipped that one a couple of times being stupid. Um, and then uh, the first, you know, really like fishing kayak, excuse me, more of a fishing kayak that I had was a ocean kayak drifter. Uh, that was my first boat that I really started to get serious about it. Uh, figured out how to rig an anchor trolley up on it, mounted some flush mount rod holders in it. Um the first one I bought was used and it was yellow and I hated it. So I painted it with uh, plastic, you know, like paint that sticks to plastic. And then it just looked, it was yellow, <laughs> but I painted it like a dark green, but everywhere the scratches would scratch it, it would show yellow through. So it literally looked like a rotten banana, you know, <laughs> and it was just God awful ugly. Uh, so I just started using that to duck hunt out of because it was, you know, dark and ugly. And I ended up saving up enough money and buying a, um, a new, a new ocean kayak, uh, drifter. I got that one in like a blue, like a, like an aqua blue color, started using it offshore, started using it inshore, started bass fishing from it. Um, and about maybe three years into using that two and a half years into using that boat. Um, I had transferred from Texas back to Virginia and I went to a place called wild river outfitters in Virginia beach. And they were at the time, um, having a boat sale, but they didn't have the boat that I wanted. And I went home and was like, man, I really wish I had this, you know, a longer boat so I could cover more water. Uh, I ended up looking up a place called Appomattox River Company. And I went to Appomattox River Company. They had the boat that I wanted. They had a used version of it, which allowed me to get it even cheaper. And that was a um, Wilderness Systems Tarpon 140. And it was the pre-140 without the tracks and all that kind of stuff because once I got involved with Wilderness Systems, I helped bring on the tracks and the, the better seats and the hatches and all that kind of stuff. But this boat was a good wreck boat um, that was also, you know, adaptable for fishing. Um, I fished out of that boat, um, won a, you know, quite a few tournaments in it, started making some money, started doing tournament uh, seminars and, at trade shows and things to where they were paying me to do it. And I thought to myself, man, there is something to this. I can actually fish and get paid to do this and I could win money. And so I started promoting the kayak bass fishing thing because I really wanted the freshwater part to pick up because I knew it was way more lucrative in the professional bass fishing world. Why would that not translate to, to kayak fishing? So I started working on it. I put the concept together to do the catch photo release thing. Um, there was another guy doing it at the same time. I reached out to him to try to collaborate. He didn't want to collaborate because he thought he was going to have everything figured out. So I ended up doing my own thing and we built a Microsoft access database to do the leaderboards and stuff in the beginning. Um, that ended up getting hacked because our page got somewhat popular 
And then we went to, uh, I reached out to Dwayne Wally, who had been doing some web work for me and uh, told him what I had an issue with my website. He fixed it, kind of saved the day and then said, hey, man, what do you think about me starting the, a tournament management system? I'll build it myself and that'll be my business and I'll, uh, I'll help promote and cross promote with you and it'll all work. And I was like, yeah, man, that sounds good to me. And then he came to the 2015 KBF Open and uh, wasn't even ready to do it. And uh, at the captain's meeting, he was like, man, I don't think it's ready at the captain's meeting. I was like, all right, we're using Tourney X tomorrow. And everybody said, what? And Dwayne's heart about fell out his butt. And um, anyway, we went through it and we made it happen. And again, those were events I couldn't fish because I felt like I couldn't really fish them if I owned it. And so then it was just kind of from 2015 on is really when the, when the fuse was lit, you know, not, we had been meandering through it. We had been doing stuff before that. Um, I was running catch photo release tournaments with their, a, a group called the extreme edge kayak fishing that ultimately ended up going belly up. Um, but we were running events with them and I ultimately become an assistant tournament director, then a tournament director for him. Um, in 2003, 2004, 2005. So, I mean, that's 17 years ago, you know, 16 years ago, 17 years ago. And then before that, we were doing catch photo release events online and at our local clubs where you would take the cameras and you would go out and catch fish. So I think the first catch photo release events we did uh, down in Corpus Christi with like before even Extreme Edge was like 2015. No, I'm sorry. Good Lord. 1997. We started the first ones. And back then you would take your digital cameras. I mean, your uh, disposable camera (laughs) with you. Yeah. And you take a picture. And at the end of the tournament you would give all of those cameras with a number on it to the tournament director and they would drive to Rite Aid or Walgreens or somewhere with one hour photo and everybody would sit around and drink and eat and BS and share ideas and talk about rigging. And it sometimes takes, sometimes take two hours to get the photos back between the drive to the photo process in place, the photo process in time and drive back. Then the judge or judges had to sit down and sort through all the photos and write links on them, add them all up and create a leaderboard. It was uh, it worked, but it was definitely not the way it is now, and definitely wasn't uh, streamlined. But we did it. We did it that way until about two thousand seven or eight, when people started to try to think about putting it online. A couple of people made rudimentary leaderboards. Um, the guy that I was talking about before, Mike Kogan, made the uh, page three two one fish. He had big ideas. I just don't know what happened with the execution. Uh, and again, he didn't want to partner with what we were doing with kayak bass fishing. So we did our own thing. And uh, as they say, kind of the rest is history, man. It's just kind of grown from there. But yeah, I went from I went from ocean kayak to a wilderness systems. Uh, I was in a wilderness systems from 2007 till about late 2017 when um, Bonafide came around. Um, uh Wilderness Systems was going through some major leadership changes and um, um, a whole bunch of executive uh, changes and, you know, a bunch of budgets got locked up and they said they couldn't do what they had been doing for me before to grow the TV shows and the tournament series. Um, And I'm really good friends with Luther from uh, Yak Attack and Bonafide. And he said, listen, man, if the opportunity ever presents itself for you to work with Bonafide, I'd love to have you. Uh, This was all before Bonafide even was publicly known. Um, I went back to wilderness assistance and said, look, I've got an opportunity. Uh, if you guys don't want to stay involved, I can make a move. 
Uh, I'd love to not just drop wilderness systems and move on. So we brokered a deal where they stayed sponsors of the tournaments for two years, even after I stopped paddling them. Um, you know, I've always, I will always have an affinity for that brand. That's really what got me uh, to where I am. Uh, they had some unfortunate leadership changes and some unfortunate business stuff that's kind of, you know, made them be a little less relevant in the space. Um, you know, I'm always a cheerleader for companies to be successful. So hopefully they can spring back and, and um, you know, continue to make quality products. Not that they've not continued to make quality products, but, you know, do a better job of getting them out there in front of consumers. Um, I'm really excited about the partnership between or the merger partnership, whatever you want to call it, between um, Native and Bonafide. Um, I have historically been a not not a fan of pedal drive kayaks. I don't they just have never fit my style. And there's been one key reason for that. I have only wanted to do a pedal drive if the pedal drive was adequate and the boat was paddleable. Uh, when I was with Wilderness Systems, they had a the 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 radar was a good paddling boat, but the pedal drive was really not that great in my opinion. So I couldn't get myself to get behind that boat. And even when I was with Wilderness Systems, I didn't pedal that boat. Um, even though I had a company that gave me pedal drives for free, you know, um, or as part of my deal, I worked for them. So it wasn't really free, but right. by all intents and purposes, what most people consider free is free. And so the whole argument that I don't use a pedal drive because I've never been with a company that has them is silly because, you know, I had a company that used them. I just didn't like it. And two, um, I really could do whatever I wanted to in this industry. And so if I wanted to be with a pedal drive company, I could be, you know, I'm not trying to sound conceited, but when you've developed the platforms that we've developed and all that, you know, I could definitely do it. I would, I didn't want to do a pedal drive until the boat was paddleable or until it also did really well with the motor. I think the ultimate solution for a kayak is, a motor on the back, like an, a Torquedo or another electric motor, that's your outboard, and then your pedals are more of your trolling motor. But at the same time, I don't want a boat that's so big that I can't really maneuver it well with the paddle because I fish a lot of places that you can't even use to pedal drive. A lot of shallow, flooded timber, a lot of stump fields, a lot of lily pads and grass and things along those lines. So when I, when I look for a fishing craft, I want something that I can also um, paddle. And so I'm very intrigued with this new Slayer Propel Max from from Native that just came out. I picked one up to uh, film with um, a couple of the pros. Haven't had a chance to even get in it myself, but I like the layout. I like the looks of it. Uh, I watched the guy that was fishing with me, Chris Cantwell, and he was paddling it. Uh, said that it paddled really well. It's not so big like the Titans and the, the Hobie Pro Anglers and the, and the big rigs and some of those boats that, in my opinion, don't really paddle that well. Um, so, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm intrigued about the, to finally have the opportunity to have a pedal kayak that also paddles well, but it's still good to stand up in and a really clean, reliable drive. And I think Native has a really clean, reliable drive. Um, I, you know, like any company, I think they've had their struggles early on when you're still developing a product. But I think that the, the current models are really clean. They're really um, durable and reliable. And so that's got me you know, very intrigued about trying the whole pedal thing. I get the opportunity to fish in some tournaments this year because I have a little more time. The Bass Series coming out is is uh, is intriguing to me. And I'm also, you know, if I can make it into my schedule, then I'm going to try to hit one of these Hobie events. And if I'm going to compete, and, you know, everybody that I know that competes says that the pedal drives are 
a really big advantage, then I'm going to definitely do everything I can to put every favor in my, you know, every advantage in my favor that I can. And so I've got to give the pedal drives a lot more serious consideration than I ever have in the past. Um, but at the same time, I hear people complaining about how expensive motors are, but you know, my bona fide with a motor on it isn't much more expensive or, or in some cases, like with the case of the Hobie 360, it's less expensive than even a pedal boat. And so for me, I'd much rather use a motor to get to the spot faster, have more time to fish and just have to maneuver and manage my boat when I'm there with the paddle. I hear a lot of arguments about the whole claiming um, a pedal drive is hands-free. And I've always had a little bit of, I've always taken a little bit of exception with that claim because I've watched people and I edit a lot of video where we're filming other guys and I watch them film and they make a cast and make a couple of reels and then they're reaching down and adjusting the rudder and make a cast, adjust the rudder. And, you know, I've seen guys go a few minutes without touching the rudder. And then I've seen guys touch the rudder, you know, 14 times in a minute. So every three or four seconds. And so it's one of those things where true hands-free to me is when you're using your feet to steer and your propulsion is coming from something else. And I just really also haven't liked the rock that I put into a boat with your legs going back and forth. Cause I feel like those pressure waves sometimes spook fish, but you know, there's a lot of guys out there in pedal boats, smashing fish, catching big bass. And, and, um, so again, I'm going to give it a shot this year. We'll see what happens. I'm not making any promises. I haven't made any promises to native and I'm not making any promises to anybody that I'm going to like it. I'm just going <laughs> to give it a, I'm going to give it a shot and see what right. happens. So one of the things that I, I like to, I like my kayak, but, um, I'm looking to re, uh, looking to reinvest in one right now. I've just got a sit-in kayak. It was the first one I bought, but my, I talked to my buddies. They said, you know, you want a longer one, something that's going to track better. And it did fine. It was just, uh, you know, not the most expensive in the world, but it did its job for when I wanted to get in and fish. And I've got some spots that I still want to use it for. Well, we actually built our own carts with bicycle tires on them. So they're bigger. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we hike back sometimes about a mile down some trails and then launch in there and you're lucky if you see another kayak every once in a while, but we get back there a lot faster than the other guys. But, uh, so I like to do that, but I want to hunt with mine too. And it's one of them things where I haven't seen a very good marriage between the two to where you can hunt with one and you can use it for fishing and be able to, cause it's, it's one of them things where unless you're paddling, then you got one that paddles, but you don't got one that you can put a motor on and haul a 200 pound deer on. What do, what do you think about that? So we've hunted out of ours, you know, quite a bit. Um, it's one of those things that several of the companies that I was affiliated with over the years haven't wanted hunting to be kind of out at the forefront. Um, so I, and, and I haven't really pushed the issue either because when you do what I do in fishing, everything you do is, is professional. So it kind of takes, you know, just being honest with you, it takes some of the fun out of fishing um, on a pretty regular basis because you're <laughs> working when you're on the water. And, um, you know, I see I get this a lot when people are fishing and they see me out on the water and they're like, well, it's better than being at work. And I'm like, I'm at work. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, So I just have never wanted that to be what hunting becomes for me. Um, what I've done professionally in fishing has taken so much time away from even the amount of time I get to spend in the outdoors with my son that I've started to work and, and all of the kids, you know, myself, my kids and Christy's kids. And I've wanted to work my schedule down and I started a plan, a plan three years ago to chip away at the schedule so we can start to end it 
you know, middle of October, early October to where we get back late October, November, and part of December to hunt. Uh, I'm a, I'm a hunting fanatic. I've got a bow right there, a bow right there. There's a deer head right there in my office. There's, um, I'm pointing and you guys can't see me, but literally I'm, I'm surrounded with, uh, with hunting stuff. I love waterfowl hunting. Uh, I grew up in probably the number one waterfowl hunting place in the world in uh, Louisiana and the Louisiana Delta. Uh, the Louisiana Delta plantation was my, right in my backyard. It has since become Honey Break, uh, which is a world famous, you know, uh, you know, hunting destination and lodge. And, um, you know, I grew up in the sportsman's paradise. It says that on the license plate and on the, the marketing materials, but it's legitimately true. And so, you know, my son uh, killed a really good buck. Well, for his age, it was a little seven point, eight point. It was a seven point that if it had another brow town, it would have been an eight point. It was a good little three-year-old deer, but he paddled out to an island and I was sick. I actually had the flu and I had 103 fever, but I, he was so jacked up on going hunting that I drove him to the spot, unloaded his gear. He paddled out to the island, set up, climbed up the tree. I'm literally sitting in the parking lot drinking coffee in my truck with the heater running. And he texted me and said, I shot one at like 830. And uh, that picture's on my Instagram where he's paddling. Um, in the wilderness systems commander and the deer head sticking out the back. And that photo has just always gotten a lot of traction and a lot of response, but we plan on doing more of that this year. Now that the schedule is going to end sooner and a lot of our stuff for planning will be done throughout the year this year instead of at the end of the year. So I don't have to spend as much time at the desk and I can spend more time outdoors. I still don't think I'm going to create content around hunting because I want hunting to be mine. I don't want it to be, you know, like what fishing is for me. Um, I'm blessed beyond measure. Don't get me wrong. I love what I do. I love every minute of it, even when I hate it, if that makes sense. Um, you know, like two, three weeks ago we were filming and I had a migraine and I hadn't had a migraine in nine or 10 years, but something happened. The stars aligned. I had some inflammation in my sinuses and then something was going on with, uh, um, my blood pressure and it gave me a migraine. And, but we were filming. So I don't know if you know this or not, but sitting in a kayak at low levels on the water with the sun refracting off the water, even with really good sunglasses on, you're just not real comfortable with a migraine. And when you have to like perk up and be, you know, a personality on camera, when you got a migraine, it's not fun. And that lasted for two days, but there was no taking the day off. You know what I mean? There's days when the wind blows 40 miles an hour and you only got two days to film. And the next day it's only blowing 20, but you got to, you got to make it work. So to me, I just don't want hunting to become that because hunting really is my decompress, go sit in the tree, try not to think about anything, um, put the phone away, look at the woods, watch squirrels and armadillos and deer and raccoons and, you know, whatever. Um, and then the waterfowl thing for me is really social. I like being in the blind and cutting up and acting fool with the people that we're hunting with. And I want to do more of that this year. Um, and then small game, you know, small game is fun with the kids going out and shooting some squirrels or shooting some rabbits and, um, and even dove season, I've missed dove season three years in a row. And that used to be like a ritual for me is to have a gun and a, and a folded seat and find a field with some buddies in September. And I just, I've got to make time for all of those things to be, you know, what I, to be well-rounded and that's what I'm doing. So for me, there's a few kayaks out there right now that are, that are good. The, uh, the Jackson Kilroy is a good hunting boat. Um, both of the, the frontiers from, uh, new canoe make good hunting, 
uh, crossover boats. Um, I've seen guys do a, a really good job of, of hunting out of the Hobie Pro Angler. Um, it's a little big and heavy for me for that type of um, thing, but I've had a lot of guys that use it uh, mostly because they already own it for fishing and they want that big stable platform for fishing. So they just make it work for hunting. Um, my favorite hunting boat that I've ever had was the Wilderness Systems Commander. But even when I was with Wilderness Systems, they stopped making that boat, uh, which is why I'm excited to be working with Native again, because Native has the ultimate series that 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 hopefully I can twist their arm to get them to reinvest in and, and light the fire back under that platform, because I think it's one of the most versatile you know, platforms out there. It's stable. It's quiet. It's um, your feet are below the waterline when you're standing up. So it even gives you an added sense of stability. They're lighter because they're a single hull instead of the double hull. And um, they're just really versatile boats. And so, you know, the native ultimate, if I can get that back into the forefront of the game with native, I'd love to take that boat and do a heck of a lot more you know, experimenting and, and maybe a few tweaks to the design to make that the ultimate duck hunting and deer hunting platform. Um, but, you know, the, the SS-127 from Bonafide is a great hunting platform. The seat reclines. Uh, so with some good blind material, you can turn that thing into a phenomenal hunting boat. The EX-123 that um, Bonafide just came out with uh, earlier this year, that thing is phenomenal. Uh, it's become my go-to if I'm just going fun fishing, grab and go boat, grab two rods and a small box of tackle and uh, maybe a soft-sided bag of worms and just go. It's lightweight. You can throw it over your shoulder and carry it. You can drag it. It's durable. Um, and it goes through a lot of places that a boat with scuppers in it won't because the scuppers lock, get tree stops, stobs, and flooded timber locked into them. So those kind of boats are great for me for getting into that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, if I'm going to flip and punch all day and I know it, that boat's great because I can wedge it in the grass real easy. And I only have two or three rods with me and baby, basically, you know, four or five tungsten weights and a, and a couple of plastics and three packs of hooks. And that's really all you need. You can go out there. And so for me, I'm going to start doing a lot more of that right boat for the right situation. And if I don't need a big set on top, I'll take that boat, strap two flipping rods to the sides, have two different bait set, setups, you know, a Plano box full of weights, a groove box full of tungsten and a you know, a soft-sided plastic box or my junk drawer in my kayak full of, uh, you know, full of whatever creature bait I'm going to add to my punching rig and go out there and just do work, you know? Yeah. So you don't have to have $4,000 worth of stuff. You don't have to have, you know, in a lot of cases, if I'm punching, I don't really need a depth finder. The hell I need a depth finder for to try to paddle over, you know, a two-foot thick mat of hydrilla. Um, I don't really need the power pole in that situation, but I like it. But I can also get away with just taking the anchor wizard and putting it on the back instead of the front and dropping that ball down just enough into that grass that it, it holds. And then I'm good. And in a lot of cases, you don't even need that. So for me, I plan on doing a lot more experimenting this year. I plan on shooting a lot more content that points out the pros and cons. I kind of got lazy, man, for the last three or four years because I've been spoiled. I get to go to really cool places to go fishing. I can launch at a clean boat ramp and pull back up to a clean boat ramp. It's easy to load. It's easy to unload. But that's just not me, man. I like to freaking, I like to work and get into places that other people can't. I like for there to be a reason to go. And I like the exploration part of it. So I'm getting back to that this year. I'm going to do a lot more. I'm going to, I mean, I'm still going to paddle to, I'm going to fish boat ramps when I'm fishing tournaments and stuff like that. But I really like the exploring and trying to find places to get into for fishing that nobody else can get into. 
And I like doing that same thing for hunting. You know, waterfowl management areas where you can't launch a boat are ideal for kayaks. And they also turn out to be some pretty dang on good fishing spots too. That's kind of what I'd mostly use my kayak for. Uh, it's getting into spots where you normally can't get normally it's the same thing with deer hunting. My only dilemma was, is if I get in there, how the heck am I going to get it back out a lot of times with the kayak I have? So I've been definitely looking at upgrading, but then again, there's some spots where I almost think a canoe would be better with an outboard on it than that because the river just moves too fast to paddle or any of that kind of stuff too. It's one of the things I haven't really figured it out yet, but maybe I'll just use both. I just don't like the canoe because it's so big and heavy and cumbersome to get it up off the top of the truck because I don't want to pull a trailer in the wintertime and do all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's it's everything's got its pros and cons. You know, you have to find that that balance, you know. Uh, one of the things I'm about to start experiment with, experimenting with as well is using inflatables. Inflatables are lightweight. They're packable. They're easy to do. And I'm going to start kind of coming up with some modifications to make inflatable stand-up paddle boards and inflatable kayaks even more viable uh, an option, especially for people that have space limitations, vehicle limitations, you know, um, and even transportation limitations. So uh, I'm excited to get to work on that. And uh, yeah, you know what, man, I'm just not limiting myself to what the way I have over the past three or four years to say that I have to fit into this, you know, particular box or this particular bubble. Um, I think kayak fishing is great. It's not the only way to fish. Um, I'm not a canoe guy just because they're so hard to transport. They're so hard to load and unload. They, uh, they're hard in the wind. They're <laughs> difficult to manage by yourself. Um, the only real advantage that a canoe has is, uh, is capacity, gear carrying capacity. And, you know, for, for packing out an animal or something like that, they definitely work. But, you know, I've never had an issue with a, um, with a uh, sit on top, you know, or even the com commander, which was a hybrid, um, you know, you take that deer and gut it. And for the most part, even a, even a 200 pound deer will lose 40% of its body weight when you fill dress it, you know, so you're down to 120. And, um, most boats, even with, when I was at my biggest, still have enough gear capacity or, or uh, weight capacity to handle me and the, and the deer. Uh, and, you know, I also, I really haven't done as much deer hunting from the kayak as I should have. I uh, got Austin into it when he was little, and we still haven't done it as much. We've got some spots we're scouting for next year to uh, to hunt these wildlife management areas where these islands, nobody's hunting them because they can't get to them. And uh, we're going to do that. But also, waterfowl hunting is phenomenal. Uh, honestly, man, my favorite way when I used to hunt from the kayak, and I did it pretty religiously, is... I had these places where I knew I was going to be bass fishing, but it was still cold nights and the days wouldn't warm up. So I'd bass fish in the middle of the day, but I was turkey hunting out of the kayak before I ever did any type of other hunting because I could paddle down these creeks. It was quieter than walking on those dead dry leaves to get into the spot where the turkeys were. And a lot of times what I would do is I would paddle real slow before daylight or I would take the paddle and put it on the bottom and just push myself along. Or if there was a slight current, I would just drift and kind of manage my drift and, uh, I'd use a crow call or, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, other types of owl calls and things like that to get these turkeys to fire off when they're on the roost. And then I would just drift into where I thought they were going to pitch out at beach, the kayak ease up the hill, you know, take a spot and smooth it out with a stick to where my legs don't make any noise, 
stretch a camo net in front of me with a couple of forked sticks and set up against a tree and wait for them to fly down. And once they fly down, I would purr a little bit or cut with a mouth call and they'd come in like they was on a dang string. <laughs> so for me, that was the most fun. And I want to get back to doing that this year. I want to do a lot more, um, you know, turkey hunting that way. I had some places in Georgia where I had that wired up by where my parents live. And then I had some places in Virginia that were really good. And then I just honestly, I just haven't invested the time or I haven't even had the time to invest to learn the, the places where I can pull that off here in Tennessee. So that's, uh, that's on the agenda, um, for next year, big time. Yeah. That's something, uh, I'm sure a lot of other people would like to see that content too. If you did want to do it, I know you don't want to, but well, I, you know, like I said, I'm not a hundred percent opposed to it. I'm not going to make it part of how I make a living is what I'm getting at. It'll be, it'll be bonus content. Um, I'm actually looking at one of those Rambo bikes right now, those uh, electric off-road things, because they make a trailer that you can trailer the kayak with. And I'm thinking, man, that opens up so many options for me where it's too far to drag the kayak and I can hook that Rambo bike up and go. I can get some exercise when I want to. And then when I don't want to, or if I, you know, if I can't, you know, you just hit the throttle, man, and those things haul butts. So, you know, I'm experimenting with a lot of different stuff this year. Uh, and I'm excited about it. I'm getting back to, I never got away from fly fishing per se, but it, it's frustrating for other people to fish with me when I'm fly fishing because then they want to do it. And I don't have the time to try to walk them through everything. You know, if you don't spend some time on, on land first and again, fly fishing has also been my fishing. I've kind of thought, I don't want to make it part of what I do professionally, but now I don't have enough time to do it without it being part of what I do professionally. Um, and I've got a great relationship with fish USA and fish USA is a huge fly fishing shop. So I've got two, three boxes of stuff over there piled up with it. I got my fly tying vices back out, got my chest packs out. Um, I've stretched some leader material. I've tied some new leaders. Uh, I'm kind of getting all my stuff organized in the office because I'll tell you something else. One of the best therapies for me, you know, back when I wasn't as busy as I am now, is um, I never had a home office before. I actually have a home office now in it. Um, but I definitely have never had an office. Or I've even not even had enough space to set up a fly time desk. So I have that space now where we just moved. And so I'm setting up a desk as a fly time desk. And for me, there's just something about taking raw materials and you make the fly, you tie your own leader, you set up your own stuff, and you go out and you catch a fish on something you made. So to me, that's just... It adds a little extra cool factor to it, adds a little extra, you know, fulfillment and gratification. And uh, I'm an artist um, in general. Uh, You know, I I think what we do with our television shows is artistic. I think a lot of the video content that we do uh, is artistic. I was a photographer for a long time before I started spending more time in front of the camera. Uh, I like to draw um, and I like to, to do some basic watercolors and things like that. But but I also fly tying is an artistic thing. So when you get into it and you start really getting into the science of what you're doing and you try to be creative, uh, there's an artistic expression that goes along with that, that I'm really excited about getting back to doing. Yeah. No, that's really cool. So when you're talking fly fishing, are you talking like a small mouth on a river? Are you doing uh, offshore? I do everything, man, with the fly. I like redfish in Louisiana. I like chasing big speckled trout in the flats in Texas. Uh, I like catching flounder on them. Um, That's fun to sight cast to a fish you can see laying on the bottom and drag something in front of them and get them to eat it. 
Uh, striper was probably one of my number one targeted species back in Virginia because there was a, they were plentiful uh, and really easy to catch on a fly. So that was always good good time. Um, I like catching smallmouth on a fly, but I really like catching largemouth, especially big largemouth with big hunkers, you know, big frog deer hair patterns and big streamers that look like a, you know, a, a six, eight inch brim. Uh, I like making oversized yak hair flies that look like a mullet and throwing those for redfish. Um, I've caught, you know, a few tarpon, not a ton, but I've caught a few tarpon on a fly rod and that's always fun, especially the juveniles, the little, you know, 12 to 30 pounders, uh, are fun. Um, snook are fun on a fly rod. Um, you know, to me, if it swims, I like to catch it. I do like to go to the smoky mountains and, and, um, you know, some of the places in East Tennessee and, uh, and go on float trips where there's a, a guide that's running the boat. So I, that's a very few times I just get to just fish. <laughs> I like doing that, but I also like to just throw a, a backpack together with a couple of fly rods and some flies and go waste a day standing on a stream, you know, cause there's a book written about it and I would never disagree with it, but like spending a day fly fishing is uh, time well wasted, you know? Um, and there's just something about fly fishing, man. If you, even if you don't catch a lot of fish, if you just have a good day casting and you're laying the fly out right and you're, making good presentations and your stuff is coming together, you have a good day. You know what I mean? Even if you don't, if you don't catch a fish at all, uh, or if you only catch a few fish and, you know, oftentimes when you're trophy fly fishing or you're, you're targeting a specific species, really results aren't what drives it. It's the, it's the process and the experience, you know, um, seeing how that fly that you tied behaves in the water, your leader turning over nice, your line turning over nice, you have a good form. Um, you know, and sometimes I just like the game of putting the fly where I want it to go and making sure that I'm staying tuned up for it. That's, that's, you know, and then challenging situations where you don't have a, uh, an area behind you to cast well, but you need to get the fly on the other side of the Creek and having to figure out how to steeple cast up and lay that fly out and, you know, three point turns cast down the stream backwards and then half change angles and flip it into a pocket or skipping it like you're skipping a bait cast or, um, which is always fun with a fly rod. So I just love that part of the, of the game. And it also allows me to go places where, you know, people don't really know who I am because I'm pretty well known on the bass fishing side, but in fly fishing side, I can go stand in a Creek all day or drive through the national forest or go to the backwoods and never see another person and definitely never see anybody that knows who I am. So that's always good too, to, <laughs> to just get away. Yeah. I hear you. Anytime anybody gets away, it's a good time. Oh, yeah, or at man. least I feel, I, I feel that I need that connection with nature. And sometimes that's uh individual time. Um, so one of the things I wanted to ask you is, so say you're targeting Lake four bass or something like that. What's your like go-to feature or something you're looking for? You know, it really depends on the time of the year. We're in winter time now. So you're really looking for wintering areas, you know, generally the deepest, stillest water that you can find and then work your way backwards from there. Um, uh, you know, I tell most people, um, from, from February on, I'm working shallow to deep. And then from November to late November to February, I do deep to shallow. Um, and that also depends on the fishery you're in. Obviously that doesn't make any sense if it's ice, you know, but, um, I kind of fish when the water temperatures are in the, um, 
forties and fifties. I'm fishing up lake. I'm fishing near the dams and I'm trying to find areas where these fish will either suspend or get deep and get away from, uh, you know, volatile atmospheric changes. Um, there's not as much water pressure as far as public boat traffic and things at that time and not as much fishing pressure, but up near dams, uh, your first major Creek arms south of the dams. If there's deep water points, um, the ends of those, uh, generally if you can find a big hump off of a, a good point where water comes out of a bigger Creek and then ties into the main river channel, that's a good staging area because those bass are in a situation where they, they followed the, the shad up the Creek. Now they've moved back out to the main river channel for winter and they're in a position where they can move back up in the spring easily. If you have a warming trend, they can move right up to the point and they can feed up on bait that moves shallow. Um, but for the most part, they got that security of the deep and that's where a lot of your bait's going to be. Um, and it's also where the deepest, stillest, most consistent water is. Um, so they like that to regulate their body temperature, you know, cause they're cold blooded animals. Um, but then, you know, as summer moves up, once the water temperature is out of the fifties and into the sixties, uh, I start to move further to, closer to mid lake and I'll focus on mid lake humps. And, you know, generally when you can divide a body of water up, you can divide it up into three sections, up lake, mid lake, and down lake. That's generally pretty successfully done on any body of water. If your body of water is east and west, then it's left to right, like you're reading. So, it, you know, up lake is your left, your, your furthest west, and down lake, mid lake is your middle. And then, you know, down lake is generally, you know, going to be more. Uh, on the eastern side of it, there are a few exceptions, but really it's with the flow of water. You know, you're going to go from the where the water comes in to the water goes out and call that up lake, mid lake and down lake. And so by the time the water temperatures in the high 50s, moving into the 60s, they're moving more mid lake um, or unless there's spawning flats in the northwest corner, like there usually is on the northwest side, um, then your fish will stay up until after the spawn. But even on a lot of your bigger reservoirs, you can't really think of the whole lake because there's fish that never move from the southern part to the northern part or from the middle part. You have to think of each creek arm or each area as its own thing. And so what I'll do is I'll generally go mid-lake and start looking for big fish at that time of year. And I'll find them in staging areas, you know, points that are more sharp drop-offs instead of the long taper ones, uh, underwater humps and holes and ledges. And then as that water temperature creeps from the mid-60s, closer to the seventies. Um, that's when they're, well, they're already pre-spawn about 62 degrees by 65 degrees, 66 degrees are really thinking spawn. They probably even moved up already, uh, because they're going to spawn in that 62 to 70 degree window and try to be done and over and, and finished by the time the water temperature gets into the seventies. Um, and so for me, I like that. Um, I call it the, the four, five, six rule. I start up Lake with the four, once it moves into the 50s, I go mid-lake. Once it goes into the 60s, I go a little further to the kind of the upper end of the mid-lake before it gets into uh, down-lake or lower-lake. And generally, that's where I'm going to find good populations of bass, good numbers of bass. And if I can find backwaters and areas and, you know, slips behind boat ramps where boats can't get into, where there's hard bottom and, and, some, and some contrast, but it gets a lot of sun, I can find those spawning fish back in there. Um, if I get into stump fields and flats that have a little skinny Creek running through them that the boats can make it through, but then it fingers off into all of these impenetrable flats and stump fields. I love getting back into that stuff. Uh, generally those are going to be more of your 
upper end of the lake and a lot of times on the on the west side which is where your sun hits first in the spring you know the sun comes up in the southeast and and sets in the, in the northwest so that's where it's going to have the sun the longest so generally that part of the the, the reservoir or lake is going to warm up first and that's where the first spawners are going to be but again if you take those bodies of water and divide them up you can take that middle third of the lake and look at the northwest section of the middle and it's going to act the same way uh, as those fish in that part of the the lake start to come into spawn and a lot of times you can work your way down the lake and follow a spawning progression and you can get three or four good weeks or windows where they're in all three phases and you get to fish through the premium phase, which for me is pre-spawn. Once they get up on the beds, they're a little harder to catch. I mean, they're easier to see, but they're also easier for everybody to see, which means there's a lot more competition. And that's generally when your your weekend warriors and your guys that fish hard for about two months a year spend the most of their time on the water. So you got a lot of competition. But if you can do some scouting in the winter and identify these spots and look for things that you go, oh, yeah. There's going to be bass here or find old beds. You know, they look like craters in the moon. Um, so a lot of times when the vegetation hasn't come back yet, they're easier to see. And I'll just mark them uh, on my GPS. I'll mark them as a, a coordinate on my phone. Um, and then in some cases, I actually take tomato sticks and I go up on the bank and I line them up and I, you know, tap that tomato stick into the ground and put a piece of reflective tape on the end of it. And then when I go back to that spot, if I get there before daylight, I can find my, my spawner spots before daylight. And I just have a little system. I put so many pieces of tape on it for, you know, a big bed, a small bed. Sometimes I put the stake out in the water too, um, on the sun, on the up sun side of it, so it doesn't cast a shadow across, or on the down sun side of it, so that the stake doesn't cast a shadow across it. But I can use that like a rifle sight. In other words, if I see the one peg out in the water and I see the one up on the bank, I just line them up, and then I know the beds between it. So I do that a lot. Like that's one of my little tricks especially in places where I don't have to worry about a lot of boat traffic and other anglers discovering my little setup. And, uh, man, that's just the part that I work the hardest for is to find those places like that, that are magic. And this year I'm going to share a lot more of that content and how do I find those places and how you can find your own, um, to where you can have those magical setups with the kayak. And that's kind of what's got a new twinkle in my eye about next season is that's what uh, I'm going to spend a lot of time doing next year. I think people or, like or this year, this year <clears throat> right this say. year. Yeah. It's 2020 now. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. Uh, I think people like that kind of stuff. Uh, it's, it's relatable. You know, it lets you in more on somebody's, uh, somebody's life and the aspects of it, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. so one of the things that I've kind of made a resolution for myself to do and recently for hunt or for fishing is that trying new things and different approaches that I've never done before, including, new baits and tackle and things like that. And uh, one of the things that I recently put into my arsenal and seems to be working pretty good is the Ned rig. Mm -hmm. Is there uh, anything that's your go-to or anything like that, that you'd say, Hey, try that out. A Cinco pretty much rigged anyway. That thing is one of the most versatile uh, baits out there. I mean, the Ned rig is in the same category um, as far as, you know, just general, uh, fish ability. It catches fish in almost all conditions. It's versatile. It's cheap and they just flat eat it. You know, my, my hangup with the Ned rig is my same hangup with the Senko. A lot of people fish it lazy and by fishing it lazy fish swallow. And when they swallow them and you set the hook, you gut hook a lot of fish. And so to me, if people are a little more mindful watching their line, watching their reels, not letting the fish swallow it as deep. Um, 
I probably wouldn't have as big a rub with either one of them. I love the Cinco. Don't get me wrong. The Cinco to me is easier to detect that initial pickup than a lot of cases when you're fishing a Ned Rig on a slack line. Um, and I think the Ned Rig is most effective on a slack line because it stands up on its end in a lot of cases. Um, but as long as you're mindful of both and, you know, when you fit, when you feel the fish pick it up, just give it a, you know, half a second and then set the hook. It's a lot better than letting them swim off with it and letting line go out for, you know, two minutes and then setting the hook and you got a fish that swallowed it. They come up blood everywhere and that kind of thing. But yeah, the Ned rig is deadly effective. Um, I like Cinco's. I like the Nico rig. I kind of modify the Nico rig a little bit. I like it to be where the weight is not exactly wacky. It's more towards one end and then the, I mean, the hook is more towards one end and the peg is down towards the end. And I even do a, a little rig called the, I call it the Chad rig, where I put a jig head weight at the bottom with a screw lock. I screw that into the bait. I tie a Palomar knot and put the the drop shot hook through the nose of the bait. And then when I pick it up, the front of the bait is up instead of the back of the bait. And, but when they grab it, as soon as they grab it, that hook is right between their nostrils because they're grabbing the bait and the hook is up at the top. And so I'll drag that and just shake it a lot like a shaky head. Um, but man, when they, when they touch it with their mouth at all, they're hooked. And that's what I, I love that for river smallmouth fishing. I've got a video on my YouTube channel. You can just look it up. It's called the, the Chad rig. And it's really a way of reusing a lot of stuff that is already, you know, the hook's gotten dull on one of those screw lock jig heads. So I'll just cut it off with a pair of wire clippers and save them. And then I set these Chad rigs up and they work great for drop shot. And I use them sometimes in conjunction with the drop shot where the bottom bait is actually a hook and then the top bait is also. So I got a double rig going and uh, there's been plenty of times I've caught two fish on that rig. You know, sometimes that's not legal in tournaments and you just have to kind of know what's going on. But if I'm fun fishing and it's legal, I'm going to do it. Um, you know, I'm not opposed to the, the Alabama rig. It's not my favorite way to fish because it's it's boring in a lot of cases and you're spending a lot of time just slow pulling and reeling up slack and slow pulling and reeling up slack. But here's your reminder, man, Alexa, stop. (laughs) (laughs) But it really, uh, it really is effective. You know what I mean? So you can't argue with the success of it. Um, but you know, a lot of times I'll find them with the Alabama rig, um, or the umbrella rig, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And and then I'll switch to something else that, that I think is a little more challenging to catch them on. It's kind of stupid when you really think about it. Like, I'll find fish and catch four or five on a cast and then switch to something else because I want to catch them a harder way. If that that makes any sense. Like I want to fish a a single swim bait or, you know, a a deep diving crank bait or flutter a chatter bait, you know, blade a jig down into the, into that area and then slow reel up through there and try to catch a fish. But I'm getting more and more where I'm more about the, the method than the results, you know? And um, I'll have people catching them on an Alabama rig, like all around me, and I just will keep doing what I'm doing because I just want to catch them a certain way. Well, that's like here the Alabama or the the umbrella rig. You can use it, but you can only have one actual hook on it. So I don't tend to gravitate towards that too much. But uh, it's kind of yeah. This is a little small compact one that I actually have on my desk right now that I just picked up from a company through a buddy. And this one in Tennessee can only have three. So what we do on this one is put a hook on the bottom, a hook on the top, and a hook on the middle one. And on the kickers, you just put lures, you know, ones that don't have a hook in them. Um, and that works. But again, I'm not that big a fan of the giant umbrella rig. That's like you're fishing with a chandelier, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah, normally my go-to is actually a Senko and I always try and most of the time it seems like I rig it Texas rig and Roland Martin taught me when I was a little kid to keep that rod tit up, tip up and the tension on it, you know, and that's kind of what I was going with. And then I kind of gravitated towards the old Ned rig this past year. And I don't know, I'm going to try, maybe I'll try the Chad rig, do that this this summer when I'm fishing. Yeah. And then one other thing that I've been doing a little bit playing around with that I figured, Hey, if I'm going to, if I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to do it. But you still can only use three hooks in Tennessee, but in places where I can't, and even in Tennessee, I'll do a double like that. I'll do the big, you know, rig in the front and a little rig in the back. And when you're, you're literally fishing a school of bait behind you. Um, and the front one, you have a little bit longer wire, so it pulses when you pull it. And then the back one's a little more fixed. And a lot of times I'll just hit that back one because it's the trail fish. And that's where you put your hook, put three of them in the back and the whole front doesn't have anything but blades and, a couple of paddle tails and you know it def it definitely attracts them man and uh and um uh, and it helps you uh up your numbers especially if you're fishing a tournament maybe i'll have to try that this year then see what yeah, i can man. come up with with one hook on it but <laughs> yeah there you go <laughs> but so i got a question for you it's kind of been lingering for a while now um as far as what kind of crossover do you guys see in the kayak world from people coming from big bass boats and jumping into the kayaks and trying to win tourneys. I don't, I haven't seen a lot yet, but there has been a lot of interest in it. You know, a lot of speculation. Um, I think at last count I had about 17, you know, touring pros, pros on actual FLW bass, uh, circuits that have called me to just inquire mm-hmm. about it. And, uh, we've actively had two or three that have gone out and fished, or, you know, attempted to fish events and things along those lines. Um, but there's a lot more interest now that bass has come into the game. Um, Hobie got Mike Iaconelli out there doing it, which has been good. Native got Jordan Lee doing it. Uh, but now bass has come into the game. I expect, you know, a few more of the Elite Series pros to do some of the crossover stuff. Um, and I think a lot of the Costa and uh, BFL anglers are expressing a lot of interest in it. So, I imagine we'll have a 15, 20% crossover this year uh, with all the series and, and options that are out there. I'm not sure that, you know, the bass events, the Hobie events or the KBF events are going to get a 20% increase from bass pro anglers. But I think across all three series, there'll be a, you know, 15 or 20% that have, um, that have, um, that's that step into the arena in one way, shape, form or fashion. And then I think it'll just grow from there. All right. So before we wrap this up, I just want to ask you one more thing here. What's kind of your, uh, I know you talked about your content and stuff like that, but where do you see KBF going to or growing in the future? I think what we want to do with KBF in the future is we want to focus more on being better balanced, having the really big premium events, but then supporting our partners to have their events. And then, I'm also kind of branching out a little bit into um, other species, like doing a catfish. We're partnering up with a gentleman to do the catfish series this year. Uh, we launched the redfish series last year, so we're going to focus on uh, focus more on growing that this year and taking that to the next level. Uh, I'd like to have a you know a little bit better balance between the three. You know, make the redfish series as big as we can, but within reason, and not go crazy like we did with the bass side. Um, but I could honestly see us getting down to 12 or 15 events total 
instead of the 35 to 40 that we're doing now to where we give a lot more uh, relief to the anglers that are trying to fish the Hobie series. They want to fish the bass series. They're trying to make a name for themselves. They're trying to win money in multiple places. And, and I think all three series will benefit from everybody having, you know, six to, to 10, maybe 12 events instead of everybody having 15 or 20 uh, to where the guys can move around from, from tour to tour. Because honestly, at, at this point, no one tour can really service the anglers uh, to the point where they can make a living doing it. And if you, we're getting close with KBF, but if you add in what Hobie's doing and what Bassmaster's doing, and somebody could supplement, you know, their income or their options or their their opportunities for sponsorships, uh, then I think we're really close. We're a couple of years away from not just a guy or two because we already have that, but you know, quite a few people doing it full time and making a living at it. And you know, that's my ultimate goal. But I don't want to abandon the grassroots. And I don't want to get away from what made kayak fishing what it is. And so I'm doubling down on supporting the partners, providing the, 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 the structure and the infrastructure, the judging, the access to affordable trophies and checks and things like that. And, and really giving the events a premium feel without spending, you know, $100,000 on a stage trailer or pyrotechnics or any of that stuff that we don't really need uh, that a lot of the bigger series have to do because they've kind of set that standard. Um, so I just want to keep it real, uh, do the best events that we can do, but really double down and focus on the partner organizations and our, uh, challenge series, because the challenge series really is where you can get started and learn how to manage catching your fish, how to take the pictures, how to take your first couple of deductions in stride. Everybody that that's listening should fish in the challenge series first. So you learn time management, boat management, how to take your pictures and all that. Instead of trying to go out there and learn that on the day that you've got, you know, a $200 or $500 entry fee on the line and you're struggling to figure out how to, you know, to how to even take your pictures and load them properly and get some experience with the app, get some experience with, again, taking the photos, how to hold your phone, where, to, how to hold the fish, all that stuff that takes some time to get used to. I highly recommend folks go into the challenge series first which starts on the first of every month and rolls through the 21st. It's the 21 day challenges. And um, it helps you learn. Then go to a partner event, you know, find a local club that's having a tournament and go fish that tournament with, you know, 25 to 75 people in it. Then move your way up to a, a KBF trail event. And then from there fish that or your, your other series, your Hobie series, your Bassmaster series, or the KBF pro tour. After you've got some experience under your belt and you've, you've kind of mastered the, the workflow of, of catching fish and photographing them, you know? Yep. No, so that makes sense. I see us going backwards a little bit, to be honest with you, man, not backwards for the lack of progress, but backwards for uh, double down and focusing on the grassroots and being a, an educational resource. We're about to start vlogging um, more and blogging more for the website to get more content out there to help folks out. So that's really what I want to do is I want to find a better balance of making KBF a resource to the anglers that aren't, tournament anglers you know for a long time and, I, and i've fallen on the sword for this one we got hyper focused on the tournament stuff and there's just more to fishing than the tournament stuff and i think kbf can really work towards becoming a more valuable resource to the industry overall by doing that and that's the plan so when you say that do you mean like uh conservation aspects or recruitment yeah. and retention for uh youths and adults and things like that or yeah 100 mm -hmm. and we're yeah. 
and, you know, putting content out that's valuable, that, that helps you save time on the learning curve, save money by not making purchase mistakes and errors, uh, better, you know, easier rigging uh, advice. Um, but yeah, truly the educational side of it. Um, and then getting the kids involved so that the dads that have kids have something to bring their kids into and the kids that have dads that are not actively and active in the outdoors can twist their arm to get them into it. And we've seen it, you know, both ways. So we're doubling down on that this year. We're going to launch our youth series online for May, June, July, and August. And then we have a championship October 17th where they're not going to pay, you know, an entry fee. They'll have to pay the KBF membership so we can get them into the KBF family, but we're going to take a significant portion of that, put it towards the payout. We're bringing some sponsor prizes and packages together. And, but most importantly, we've got some scholarship commitments from some universities and these kids are going to be competing to win scholarships to go to college. And I think parents will really get behind an activity that's not only good for you and it's, it's healthy and it's wholesome, but you also have a chance to save them some money on sending them to college. And to me, that's a pretty, pretty lofty goal that we've set for ourselves, but we're going to start it in May this year and we're going to do the best we can for the first year and then just build on it from there like we've done everything else. And again, I'd, I'd like to reduce some of the KBF stuff so I've got more time to focus on things like that. That's a pretty cool concept. I like I like how that's working. So is there like an age grouping then or is it? Uh, yeah, we're going to do um, we're going to do 13 to 18. Uh, we're basically going to start at, you know, about high school age to high school age. And I almost started at 13 to 17. I mean, 16. But you got a lot of guys that are still in high school then and, and it becomes non-inclusive and it limits it. And, you know, we also allow our youth to fish in our regular series. So we felt like it's a good compounding effect. Um, so, yeah, so we're going to make the youth series 13 to 18, uh, 13 until the day you turn 18. So, um, you know, it, it kind of sucks if you start fishing during the year that you're 17 and you're going to turn 18 later that year. But we have to draw the line somewhere. And so if we said as long as you start the season 18, we could have some guys or kids that are almost 19 years old fishing in it. And they're in college, you know, so we're going to separate it and we're going to make it from 18 above uh, college. Or if you're interested, if you're registered and actively in college, you can compete in the collegiate series uh, as a 17 year old, because I would have been in college at 17. So I'm sure there's going to be quite a few folks that are, but we're not going to launch that yet. We were thinking about doing them both at the same time. But again, I want to take the time to do the high school series first, build that following, build that buy in, build that as clean as we possibly can and as well run as we possibly can learn whatever lessons we can and then add a collegiate, uh, series to it uh, very shortly thereafter. That's pretty cool. I look forward to seeing how that develops and everything. And my daughter, uh, every time we, if we're going to watch a show with dad, normally it's either hunting or fishing. And so she always mm-hmm. says, dad, maybe you should watch some kayak fishing. And normally it's your show on there. So that's nice. pretty cool. Like to, hopefully something will come out of that. I asked her if she wanted to go ice fishing. She said, no, dad, I'll wait until summertime. <laughs> nice. That's good. <laughs> she likes getting out in the kayak and the canoe. So, um, cool. but it's been good talking to you. I appreciate Likewise, you coming man. on and uh, sharing everything. And uh, I think that's a good note to wrap it up on. I appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Yep. Thank you. All right, man. Y'all have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. If you like this episode, please subscribe on whatever platform it is that you're listening to. 
Also, you can find us on Instagram at Publicly Challenged, and you can also find us at Publicly Challenged Podcast or publiclychallenged.com. So please reach out to us with any questions, comments, concerns, or maybe you'd even like to be on the show. And once again, thank you so much for listening. Anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. One of the most legendary shows in the outdoors is on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Primo's Truth About Hunting, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.